Dallas All-Stars presents In Your Face Laxcast. Unfiltered opinions on the most controversial topics in the game of lacrosse. I'm Ryan Danny, former Division I college and pro player and Division I college coach, currently living and coaching in the city of Philadelphia. I'm joined with my co-host, Amy Powers, the legend, former Division I college head coach, MLL All-Star, three-time All-American, and arguably the best to ever play the midfield position. Each show, we dive into the world of lacrosse from high school, college, to pro, as well as bring on special guests. You can subscribe to us via iTunes and check us out on Twitter at In Your Face Lacks for more information. Enjoy the show. Loaded up lineup for the podcast, AT. So much going on. We felt like we had to wait and combine it all into one podcast. From crowning two tournament champs, from coaches, players of the week, to job openings and rumors of more openings to come. Uh, eight tourney previews, our picks, and we have to get in, of course, hashtag Ass Towers. I'm already exhausted. But first, AT, the Patriot League tournament wrapped up this weekend, and Loyola was crowned champs. On Friday, Army upends Navy for the second year in a row uh, in the first round with a 9-3 throttling, and Loyola survives a close ones against Bucknell. On Sunday, the Greyhounds stomped on Army, revenging their 12-11 season-ending loss in 2015. In my opinion, Pat Spencer, the freshman attackman out of Boys Latin, was the entire story of the Patriot League tournament. Seven goals, six assists in two games. What an animal. AT did the best team in the Patriot League take the title this year. Uh, no question they did. You know, Coming into this tournament, I thought that they would eventually win. Uh, even though mm-hmm. Navy had beat them during the regular season, I just felt like... Loyola seemed to be getting better and better, and Navy seemed to be holding on a little bit more. Uh, I was shocked, you know, in the semis to see Navy lose to Army. I actually had picked Navy, and Army left no gray area, thumping them 9-3, which is a credit to Joe Abarici getting those guys to come back right. and, uh, and play the way that they did. You called that, uh, so you, you, you nailed that one. Yeah, but it was one out of like uh, 52 that I missed. Uh, you killed me this week. That's all right. We're not focusing on that 52 right now, Ryan. We're only focusing <laughs> on that, that one. And so you called that. But Charlie's, Charlie Toomey and his staff have just done a phenomenal job with this team. You know, they started out strong. They, you know, had some big wins against Virginia and Hopkins and then lost a tough midweek game to Towson and then have really – seemingly gotten stronger and stronger and stronger as the season has gone on. And while I agree with you that Pat Spencer, you know, was the story at five and five in the championship game against Army's All-American defender, Austin Schultz. You know, I also think that Graham Savio deserves some recognition as well for him to go 15 of 23 at the X in the championship game against one of the best units in the country. It's not like the Army group is they're just a bunch of guys that try real hard. Right, it's right, not. Right. Those guys are, are killing it, and they've got two of them that are 65% plus. And Savio went 15 for 23 and ultimately was the Patriot League MVP, finishing 26 out of 40 for the weekend. But right. clearly, Pat Spencer, I thought Quint brought up a great point the other day when he spoke about you know, the conference players of Wait, the- wait, wait. Wait, wait. Quint brought up a good point? <laughs> He did. You know, what he, what he had said was that, how is Pat Spencer not on the Toroton list? And it that is true. all 
of the 10 conference players of the year should automatically be on the tour time list. And I agree with that. That's a really, really, uh, that is a good point. It's just really a good point. And it's responsible to sport. I I think that Pat Spencer right now, having tied the Loyola single season point record, 71 points going into the NCAA tournament. It's amazing. As a freshman, he has to be considered first team all American. You know, I had said last week, you would both, we both said that we didn't think that he, you know, he deserved to be a teamer, but we both had thought that he didn't deserve to be a first teamer. I mean, yeah. how do you put Kavanaugh first team before you put Pat Spencer? You cannot. You can't, you can't do that. You, you can't, can't do that. Do that. And no. so, uh, you know, let's see what happens here. But he's got to be in consideration for first team All American as a freshman. I and mean, there's only been, I, I believe, you know, maybe four of those all time when you look at Mikey Powell, Del Dressel. Frank Urso, so. uh, and Trevor Baptiste. Those are the those are the only four in the history of college, of Division One. Was Nelson? Lacrosse. Was was Nelson? No, a, he, no, was not. he was not. He was three okay. time, He was three time at Q's, and okay. uh, he was not first team when he was a freshman at NC State. Sure, sure. So uh, you know, I, I think, but but that Army game was great. Loyal is playing their best lacrosse right now. You also have to credit on the defensive end, Foster Huggins, shutting down Cole Johnson, who's had an awesome year for Army. Yep. You know, again, Stover, the freshman goalie that they just put plugged into the lineup six seven games ago, sixty three percent save percentage. You know, it ten really saves, outplaying Army's AJ Barreto, just five saves and twenty seven percent. Loyola is a scary team, and if Loyola can win faceoffs, and Graham Savio is on the front end of the whistle these days, if they can win faceoffs, they are going to be a scary team. You know, yeah. I think Matt Dwan does a does a really really good job. With their defense, I was talking to Jamie Hanford, uh, loyal alum, about it yesterday, and you know Matt uh, Matty Dwan doesn't get enough credit. You know his name would be a name that should be at the top of a lot of athletic directors' lists as they look to fill some of these positions that are either open or are going to open this summer. He's a guy that I would go right after. Make sure I get him in the office to interview. Yep, absolutely. I posed the question on Twitter. And you obviously alluded to it a little bit with freshman performances. Um, who are the best freshmen ever? And is Spencer putting up a performance to rival some of the all-time best freshman performances in Division One history? I had mentioned Mikey Powell. I mean, I don't think anyone, uh, you know, would argue. I mean, he came in; it was incredible what he did at you know what five foot nine, one hundred and thirty pounds, maybe soaking wet, yeah. uh, just taking over Division One the way he did. I also mentioned Derek Kenny. Uh, in his freshman campaign, never played goalie, I don't think again, for the rest of his Virginia career, when he won <laughs> national championship with the eye black. I remember the eye black all over his face. Right. And he just stood on his head for the entire year. It was incredible. Um, and then, of course, you just mentioned him. Trevor Baptiste wins a national championship as a freshman, winning, I don't know, I, I, you know the stats better than I do, 70%. Uh, at the face of, it was incredible. Does Pat Spencer and his performance this year rival some of the best freshman performances of all time yeah it has to you know i think the major difference i mean the guy that you're going to compare him to i think uh the most responsibly would be mikey powell simply because they're both attackmen sure sure you know but i think the major difference between mikey powell and patrick spencer is we all were awaiting the arrival of right. Mikey powell it's so true. given what you know casey and ryan did before him and we all knew. I remember watching Mikey Powell when he was a high school senior out in Vail, and he was incredible. 
Uh, you know, and he's just electrifying to watch his change of direction, his athleticism, you know, his appreciation uh, of the ride, him on yes. offensive end ground balls. You know, he just didn't have a weak point to his game. You know, Pat Spencer is almost the polar opposite in the way that he has arrived in Division One lacrosse. He played two years of JV, was five foot six as a sophomore, <laughs> you know, grew eight inches and ended up being six foot two and ends up coming to Loyola, I'm sure, as a you know, a late commit. Sure. And is basically having a first team all American freshman campaign. You know, right. I had, had Devin Dwyer from Harvard there a few weeks ago and we had spoke about it, but I'm sorry, you know, I'm taking Pat Spencer ahead of Devin Dwyer. And Devin Dwyer is a great player, has had a great year for Harvard. But Pat Spencer has has quarterbacked Loyola to the Patriot League championship and is on the verge of, you know, uh, potentially leading them to the Final Four. I mean, this is a team that that could go that deep. They really could. Yep, I so, agree. You know, I think that I think they're two totally different players, but I think that they've impacted their team in very similar ways, Mikey Powell and Pat Spencer. That's incredible. Navy, on the other hand, now let's go to the opposite side of the Patriot League spectrum here. Navy, two times they beat Army in the regular season. Big high fives and a chest bump to Navy. And then two times they lose to them in the Patriot League tourney. I've always said it's very hard to beat a, a good team twice in the yep. same season. Even harder to do it, I feel like, within two weeks of each other. Is Navy's season in jeopardy? I hope not. I think that Navy deserves an at-large berth. You know, their losses are at Hopkins, or I'm sorry, Hopkins in the second game that was actually held at Navy. They lost in double overtime. That was the second game of the year. It was a phenomenal game. They lost 12-11. They've lost to Maryland, what many consider to be the first number, you know, number one seed in the Correct. tournament, the best team in the country. They're 10-5 on a Tuesday night to make-up game. They didn't play particularly nope. inspired that game. Nope. They did play their worst game of the season against Army after just beating them, you know, two weeks before, and they kind of got pounded. Yeah, which yep. is really, really bad. However, I just think that their body of work, beating Loyola, beating Air Force, I, I just, I, you know, again, when I say it's just those teams and Army, I, I you know, I got to look at the other. Let's see what happens. Let's see what yep. happens in yep. the, in the tournaments. If everything goes as expected, and the teams that we think are the favorites to win. If they all win their respective conference tournaments, yep. I would expect Navy to get an at-large berth. Yep. If if something out of the ordinary happens and say Stony Brook beats Albany yep. or, uh, you know, God forbid Brown loses or <laughs> you know, something like that happen, happens, you know, Rutgers wins the big yes, 10. Yes, yes, that's a good one too. Then I think Army all could... Possible. Uh, yeah, all possible. Yeah, yep. listen, there's a lot of things that could happen. I think that, you know, Navy could end up getting bounced out that way. But in terms of a team, their overall body of work in 2016, I believe that Navy is, a, is an NCAA tournament team. Moving on to the ACC tournament, Syracuse takes the second ACC title in a row this past Sunday, taking down UNC last Friday night with a 10-7 victory, and then Duke in a 14-8 implosion on an incredibly rainy day in Georgia. The story in my eyes is Syracuse's balance. I knocked on it earlier this year, stating that I didn't 
think that it would carry them very far with a star attackman. However, it seems like it's working for them. Uh, with that being said, we're talking about an ACC that's been at a lowest point maybe in its history. But nonetheless, they played well and had the mental toughness to withstand a ridiculous delay to pound a Duke team with seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, only up one. A.T., what were your takes on that game? Well, my first concern certainly was Karch Pompadour. You had referenced that. Oh, my and, gosh. An emergency tweet. What was, oh, my God. And, what was and, he thinking? Just, oh, my God. Kark your hair. The, what? That was one that, as soon as that happened, uh, I realized how much of a dire situation it truly Holy was. Holy sm- we were. I was, I was nervous. I was sweating, palm sweaty. I didn't know what to do. I, I almost called him. I said, get back inside. Get back inside, Kark. You know, but 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 his pompadour. I'm sure he's got many people working on that. And listen, the 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 angle at which it comes off of his forehead it's shows beautiful. that it has heart, oh. I mean, a lot of heart. So, Clark, nice hustle in there. Nice um, job. Nice. Really, really, really <laughs> impressive. Uh, you know, beyond that, a distant, distant concern was the game. Uh, <laughs> You know, how about Evan Malloy? 13 saves, Incredible. 62% save percentage. Uh, matching feet with Dukes Fowler, 17 saves, 55% save percentage. You know, pretty even in the cages there. Uh, the guy that I don't think gets enough credit, we talk about Nick Mariano as a first-team consideration at midfield, and he certainly deserves it. It's a stud. But I think the scariest guy on their roster is Sergio Salcido. He's Two scary, goals, isn't he? four assists. He has to be under consideration for first-team All-American at midfield. He's got 24 goals and 19 assists and appears uncoverable right. by one guy. Kind of, kind of brings me back to the way that Dom Finn used to play back in the early 90s. His lateral change of direction is off the charts. Yep. He's got an absolute bomb on the run and... You have to slide to him, which immediately makes him a dangerous playmaker. And he's shown through the balance of his statistics that he's just as comfortable feeding the ball as he is, you know, pinging corners. So I was really impressed with him. You know, the other end of the field, obviously, you've got Syracuse's defense just clicking at the right time. They've yep. got they've, – they've evolved into – I think a a real dark horse for the national championship, if that's a a term that you can put with Syracuse, things have changed. But, you know, they've got what appears to be very consistent, great goalie play. Obviously, the face-off guy with Ben Mousetrap Williams is off the charts. Their offense has always been (laughs) scary, but super well-balanced, as you just said. And now the defense seems to be sliding with recovery in mind instead of just sliding irresponsibly. Yep. And what's come out of this is a Syracuse team that could very well be playing for yet another national championship here. So I yep. was I was very impressed. I know that we will get you know to this in the in the in the uh, you know later in the show, but you have to draw some attention to the fact that Syracuse ends up avenging a 17 to 7 home loss in front of all of their alums to Notre Dame on Friday. Yep. Coming back to beat them in double overtime, I think it was, or overtime, whatever it may be, but coming back to avenge that loss. And then also coming back in the final on Sunday to outscore Duke six to one in the fourth quarter and avenged Duke's five goal comeback win over Syracuse in early April. Nice. It's just it's just Syracuse is playing great at the right time and it just 
It's not surprising. It isn't surprising. Kark. How about Kark uh, outside of the hair situation? Saving the ACC. Did you check out the Periscope? Did you see it? No, I didn't. It was uh, it was incredible. The last seven minutes of the game, uh, the, the uh, Duke uh, Sports Information Director, uh, SID, periscoped the game. Of course, she was on the losing side of the situation, but he basically commentated it like it was a normal broadcast. Uh, it was great. Uh, he did a good job. Over 6,000 people, or close to 6,000 people. So, like, FaceTimed it? it? Is that what Periscope is? <laughs> You're so analog. It's incredible, man. I'm analog Andy. <laughs> Andy Log. Log. Periscope is basically um, a live streaming app that works within Twitter. So you can actually just live stream yourself all day. Imagine living the life of Andy Tyler. You could have. No, I just made it. The (laughs) the Tower Show. You could have your own Tower Show. You just Periscope yourself all day and it would show up on Twitter timeline. It's pretty. That is a big no thank you. (laughs) Anyway, the question was raised on Twitter as well Does the rain delay in Georgia and the ACC trips going to places like Kennesaw in the future? And there is, is there a better place to quote unquote grow the game? I'm not saying that Georgia isn't a good spot for the ACC tournament, but is it the best spot? And are there other places to hold it, like, say, maybe Wake Forest? Uh, what if they held it at a place that's teetering on getting a Division One lacrosse team? Would that actually be a better place to hold the ACC tournament? What are your thoughts there? I think that they... I, I think it was a good spot. I mean, I think the weather certainly created a downer yep. and created its problems. But I think that out of respect and out of the responsibility to expand the sport and bring it to new hotbeds. Yep. I think that this is something that was very well received, you know, whether or not they bring the ACC final to California or Dallas or Chicago, or, you know, some area that, you know, isn't necessarily an ACC hotbed. Sure. I just think that given how high profile the teams are in this conference, that it would be a real service to the game to get it in front of a group of, you know, newer lacrosse players. You go put it in Dallas, you go put it in Southern California or Northern California. I mean, you can go on and on. There's, there's, there seems to be lacrosse being played at the youth level you know, in every sport, in every state in the country. And I think that they should continue to do that. You know, certainly I'm not paying for the plane tickets, so <laughs> I'm right there to say, hey, this is what you should do, guys. But I do think that there's a responsibility to the best teams with the highest budgets to give back to the game. And certainly anything that can increase live viewership, I think, increases the popularity of the sport and ultimately does it a great service. I agree. Uh, AT, when we come back, we've got players and coaches of the week. Maximize your comfort. AT, we're back and we've got in your face players and coaches of the week. AT, who is your player of the week? For me, you got to go to the Patriot League final, and you got to go to Pat Spencer. Five goals, five assists. It's just an incredible performance. Ten points in the Patriot League championship game to secure the AQ for Loyola as a freshman quarterback. Yep. And does it within the framework of their offense. Yep. You know, it's not like when Mikey Powell played 
and Syracuse would get the ball and give them the ball, and then everybody would go stand on the side <laughs> and get their cameras out. You know, Patrick Spencer, he, he does it within the framework of the offense, yep. and he seems to take advantage of whatever the defense gives him. You know, I look at his style of play, and I see Connor Gill. Yeah, very from, nice, nice. You know, 2000 or 1999, whatever that was. I see the same sort of style of player. Connor Gill, you know, was known as a setup man mm-hmm. or somebody that, you know, was an assist man throughout his time at, at Virginia, you know, early on. Was a three-time first-team All-American. I'm fairly confident that he made second or third team as a freshman, although I don't can't remember for sure. But I know he was a three-time first-team All-American and was primarily, you know, a, a feeder in college only to go to the Boston Cannons oh my God. and become a goal scorer and explode and turn into, you know, at least his best year there was the MLL MVP and, and arguably the best offensive player on the planet at that time. Yeah, he was incredible. And I see Pat Spencer having that kind of versatility, that sort of unassuming game that, you know, you, you, you notice him, but he's not making jaw-dropping plays. He's just making efficient plays within the framework of, of his team's game plan, and at the end of the day, the statistics seem to take care of themselves. So my player of the week is Pat Spencer from Loyola, you know, five and five versus Army. You know, you mentioned it earlier how he had a growth spurt and kind of showed up on the scene really late. Uh, you know, another guy, and not to take away from from Pat Spencer, but another guy that's playing the same way is the kid Restivo at St. Joe's. Late recruit grew. From Stud. like five foot nine to like six foot two, three. I mean, right. he's just a monster too. So I'm, I didn't mention that earlier, but I felt like it needed to be mentioned on the podcast. My player of the week has got to go to Nate Loons. Is it Loonies? Loons? Yes, stud. I'm not sure, and I'm not going to apologize because I got called out for apologizing every time I blow somebody's name. Uh, UMBC program <laughs> record ten <laughs> goals with the last four being down the stretch. Although it was in a loss, what a performance. It's more impressive that this is actually a program record considering who's worn a UMBC jersey over the last decade. Drew Westervelt, Andy Gallagher, Pete Pollyon, Brendan Mundorf, some of the world's best players. and Nate- Steve Marole. Yes, Steve Marole. Uh, what was that, 82, I think? No, Ryan. 92, was, 92, uh, 92. Yeah, that 92, was a big help. 92, it was my year, 92, Ryan. 92, 92. Okay, he, he had the single-season scoring record for a long, long yes, time. Yes, he did. 23 years or 24 years before Lyle Thompson broke that. So uh, he, he, Steve Morrall may have been the best of all of them. Uh, you know, he puts himself on that list forever, setting the record for goals in a game. So great work to Nate Loons. Uh, Coach of the Week, AT, who do you got? Uh, you know, we discussed this. Uh, I, I'm i actually going to go a little bit off the radar here and go with John Tillman. Nice. Uh, 11-8 victory over Johns Hopkins in perhaps the sport's biggest rivalry at Homewood Field. This game always seems to be won by the team coming into the game that's the underdog. Yep. And this year, Maryland was favored. And... They were playing at Homewood, and it just kind of set up for Hopkins to somehow find a way to pull this game out. Yet John Tillman got his team to put in yet another hyper-consistent performance in what appears to be, along with Brown and potentially Syracuse at this point, the most balanced team in the country. I'm, I'm going to, depending upon how the seeds come out on Sunday night, I'm going to say that my final four preliminary group 
will be Brown, Maryland, Syracuse, and Denver. Now, I don't know if the seeding will allow that to course, take place, but I think that those four teams right now are the four most complete teams, and I really hope selfishly that those are the four that are playing. Actually, I want to see UNC in the Final Four, but I just don't think that they are as complete as the other four teams at this point. So uh, my coach of the week is John Tillman for an 11-8 win over Hopkins in the rivalry game at Homewood. My coach of the week, Desco. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. He definitely deserves it. The second time in a row, Syracuse takes the ACC title and the AQ. It seems like anytime Syracuse loses, you start seeing the virtual, quote-unquote, fire Desco signs being posted everywhere. Uh, but, man, the guy gets it done. There have only been three AQs in ACC history, and not one of the original eight, three ACC teams have won it yet, and only Duke has competed in the championship of any of them. Uh, I love that Syracuse comes into the ACC and ruins that comfortable four-team bubble that was once was the old ACC. Credit Desco, Leland Rogers, Donahue, all for getting it done uh, time after time. Desco is my coach of the week. When we come back, job openings, the musical chairs, it started already. Maximize your comfort. AT, the season of musical chairs has already started. The Princeton job is open. We already know that, of course, and we've talked about that open already. But AT, I'm going to throw a question at you. You've got all your money in your hand, and you've got one guy who's getting that job. Who are you putting your money on? For Princeton? Yep, correct. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy Brian Volker. That's what I'm going to do. And if enough money doesn't get me Brian Volker, then I'm going to call up John Torpy. Those would be the two guys that I would look at right now. Uh, I may be a little biased regarding Torp, but I just know the passion, competitive spirit, uh, and drive that he has, and I think that he would be a phenomenal hire for Princeton. But as I said before, I don't think that they can go wrong. I think you've got a lot of other guys out there that are also great candidates, but if I've got all the money in the world, I'm going to go buy Brian, Brian Volker. Uh, you took an interesting aspect to that as if you were the AD and you wanted to buy. Uh, I'm going to Vegas. I'm going to put all my money on Natalie getting that job. Not saying that the two guys that you mentioned shouldn't be considered. They absolutely should. Torp is incredible, as is Volker, as are many other candidates out there. But uh, my money would be on Natalie taking that job. But there's another job opening. Not many people are talking about, but the Penn assistant job is opening. Jim Stagnita leaves Penn at the conclusion of this season to coach uh, the Charlotte Hounds, uh, their head coaching job. Uh, depending on the direction Mike Murphy wants to go in, it could end up being a coordinator spot, certainly defensively. Uh, or it could be a great opportunity for a young guy to come in and get invaluable experience working on a great staff with an incredibly, as you mentioned, time week after week, AT, promising Quaker squad. But in relatively stunning news, Don Zimmerman steps down as head coach for the UMBC Retrievers after his 23rd season at the helm. The Hopkins 76 grab, uh, 76 grad grabbed 237 wins in his career, 164 of them at UMBC. He headed J Johns Hopkins to three national championships and has appeared in 13 national tournaments. Let's not forget, too, the two national championships he's won as an assistant back in 81 and 82 at UNC. Regarded as one of the best minds in the game, he'll transition to a role at the athletic department. A.T., your thoughts here. 
I don't think the sport adequately understands how great of a coach Don Zimmerman has been over the last 30 years, how much he's done for the sport. This is a true legend in our sport. He, he absolutely is cemented in the conversation of the best all-time coaches in the history of this sport. Right there with Bill Tierney, Dom Stargia, uh, Coach Desco, Roy Simmons, Yurik. Will, Willie Scroggs. I don't put Yurik in that group. Wow. Uh, Rich, Richie Moran, um, Buddy Beardmore, Henry Ciccaroni, mm-hmm. uh, the head coach of Hopkins before Zim took over, yep. John Donowski, Dave Petromala, Desco, Charlie Toomey, Desco's in there. I said okay, Desco. Great, great. I think that he is in that group of all the coaches that have won the national championships. You know, those are the guys. That's the group. I would also put Tony Seaman in that group. Even though he never won a national championship, he did take three different teams to the Final Four in UPenn, Hopkins, and Towson. So I think that that is a unique accomplishment, never been done by anybody else. That's incredible. It really is. And then, you know, you sort of have the second tier of guys – Glenn Thiel in his early days when he was at Virginia won a national championship in 72. I think if that's, you know, sort of a, a line in the sand, then he has to be in that conversation. Dave Carmen, sort of a one-season wonder at North Carolina in 1991 yep. before that program fell into dire straits. Uh, other coaches that had gotten really close that were, were phenomenal, Dick Adell, Dave Cottle, John Tillman has to be considered. He's just done an incredible job of getting Maryland's you know, back and back and back again. It just, you know, when, when he first took over Maryland after Dave Cottle, you know, left, he went to the final game with Dave Cottle's players. Yep. And I just, you know, I was the first one saying, so what? I could have done that with Dave Cottle's players. I couldn't. <laughs> I was too busy running Dartmouth into the group. <laughs> but the reality is, John Tillman not only did it that year, he came back and did it the following year. Yep. And I believe he's been to the final game, I believe, three times out of his first four or five seasons there. He's been to the final four and four out of five years. Really incredible job. Yeah. So he has to be right there, um, you know, and they're going to win the, perhaps this year. And when they do, you know, he's going to – he has to be considered in that group. He's just, all he does is win. Yep. And, you know, all he does is win. While he didn't win that much when he was at Harvard, you know, certain coaches are geared toward success at certain types of programs – and I think that John Tillman is certainly um, getting it done at the scholarship program. Yep. Richie Meade's another one that had a great year at Navy, had a great career at Navy, you know, now, now at Furman. But, uh, but Don Zimmerman has to be right there with Bill Tierney, Dom Stargia, uh, John Tesco, Roy Simmons Jr., Richie Moran, um, John Donowski. Just incredible I, I just group. have him as one of the all-time best coaches in the history of the sport. That's incredible um, for you to say that. And I agree. I do agree. Uh, but it's nice to hear from somebody who certainly uh, irrefutable. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so, you know, we have obviously got to talk about who fills the role at UMBC. Uh, Ed Lee from the Baltimore Sun recently wrote an article. He wrote a bunch of articles about Don uh, and his retirement. Um, and certainly he wrote about a few guys that he thought would replace Don. I thought he nailed it. And I thought that he also missed out on a couple guys. But of course, he's only got so many words he can print in paper. Uh, I would go with, first off, he went with. Uh, Bobby Benson from Hopkins. Yeah, he went yeah. with Kevin Conry at Maryland. He went with for sure. He went with Ryan Moran at Loyola. 
For sure. And then he also went with Ed Stevenson from UMass Lowell. For sure. And I think he nailed it. Um, I would add a couple more guys. Andy Gallagher, who's currently there as well. He's a great player at UMBC, alum. And I think he definitely deserves a shot at the head job there. Uh, And another guy that, um, you know, we talk about John Torpy a lot on this show just because of the success he's had at High Point. But you got to look to his associate head coach as well, Pat Tracy, who was uh, a coach there for a long time uh, at UMBC as also uh, a candidate for that job. Agree, agree 100% with Pat. You know, he was part of the staff when they were beating Maryland. Consistently. You know, they, it, that's right. That's right. And and Pat, for those of the people that don't know Pat, uh, he's easily the most competitive person in a 165-pound body <laughs> on the planet. I mean, oh, my God, is that guy uh, on point. And I, I think he would be a phenomenal hire. But I also agree with the names that you mentioned. Uh, Ed Stevenson, you know, was a great coach there with Zim in the early going before he left to go to Binghamton. Uh, and has done a great job with UMass Lowell. But I, I think that you, I think you pegged it with those names. Guy Van Arsdale, after his fifth season, will no longer head the Dolphins of Jacksonville University. Guy was 25-39 and 39 with a MAC championship in 2013 uh, with a program record of eight wins. I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Guy, a few recruiting events with him. Uh, he's a great guy. AT, I know, I know you know Yeah, he's well, a great so. guy. Yep, he he uh, he made a poor decision in drafting me to the Rochester Rattlers during the initial <laughs> Major League Cross draft, um, which which is probably why I ended up coaching Jacksonville. Um, no, but he, he, Guy Van is one of the sport's all-time great guys, and I know that he did everything he can to try to get that team over the hump and, and they won some big games, but I just think that, um, you know, that's a job that I'm not positive is set up for the type of success that people that just sort of don't look at the details and see what kind of job that really is. You know, is it, is it fully funded? I believe it's underfunded. I believe that they're offering five scholarships instead of 12. Yeah. Uh, I'm not positive that being in an area where there isn't legitimate high school lacrosse is something that helps them succeed in recruiting. You know, people can say, oh, how hard can it be? You're going to recruit kids down to the beach in Florida. You're really not. You're recruiting them to Jacksonville. Right. You're not recruiting them to Palm Beach. It's not like they're, you know, 15-minute cab ride to downtown Miami. That would be a different story. Right, right. Uh, You know, so I I don't – I think that this job is either going to go to – a current head coach at a school where that head coach isn't necessarily in love with his current position or an up-and-coming assistant that is at a higher-profile program that is ready for his own gig and ready to start his head coaching career. And I think that that – I think there's a lot of candidates for a situation like this. We've said it before – there are too many great coaches for too few opportunities. And so when a job like this opens up, even though it's not a top 30 program, it is a Division One head coaching opportunity. And there are only about 70 of those out there. And I think this job, it's going to be a dogfight for people looking for this. And I think what I think it's I think I think they're obviously going to get somebody good because they have something that there isn't a lot of, and that's an opportunity 
for a guy to have his own program at the Division One level. I don't disagree with that at all. I think the days of, and Andy, you can probably speak to this better than I can, but the days of passing up or a big-time, how do I say it, a big-time institution whose assistant coach will look at a job like Jacksonville and say, ah, I'm not going to, no, I don't want that. I can do better than that. The days of thinking that way are are over. And I think it starts, you can go back, you know, a few years to even when, you know, uh, Torp took the job at High Point. And you'd look at High Point and a lot of maybe high profile assistants saying, oh, I don't want that job. And then Torp goes down there and kills it. And now everyone's... Look at Taylor Ray. Taylor, Taylor Ray, Ray great, exact great, same thing. Great. Right. Who won St. Joe's? They can't win there. They suck. They've always right. sucked. Right, right. And Tyler, Taylor Ray has turned them into a, a, you know, almost a top 20 program. They really, I mean... The, the, they are a scary team. I agree with you 100%. John Torpy did the same thing. Right. You know, but it's one thing, as we've said before, it's one thing to take over a new program and be the first head coach there, like Ryan Poley, like Joe Amplo, like John Torpy. And it's another thing, Dan Shamati, it's another thing to take over a program that has a history of losing and a losing culture. Yep. And Taylor Ray did that yep. at St. Joe's and has made that what people now would consider a great job. Yep, absolutely. And I, I think that is, I think that's the hardest thing to do in this sport. I don't disagree. I, you know, I'll give you a couple names that I think might be a good fit at Jacksonville. Certainly guys that are high profile that would actually entertain an offer from Jacksonville. Pat Myers at UPenn. He's been at a couple different places, scholarship, non-scholarship institutions. I, I, I agree. He'd be great. He'd be great. Another guy, Chris Fife's at UNC. Uh, another guy that I think that has earned the right and the reputation among, or around the country as a guy who's going to recruit uh, heavily. And I think that that's your that's your biggest hurdle at a school like Jacksonville is recruit, recruit, recruit. And we've mentioned it a million times on the show uh, that, you know, it, there are too many good players out there in high school to not be able to evaluate, recruit, get to your uh, institution and develop them into the next Pat Spencer uh, of co- Division One College across. Another guy, Ryan Wellner. Right. At the Naval Academy, another he'd be great, he'd be huge. Uh, Anthony Gallardi at Towson, I think, yep. is another guy that's from a high-profile institution. Certainly, right now, uh, what Natalin's done at Towson. Uh, but another name I think we should bring back up is is this a spot? Maybe Chris Beats makes a comeback and goes back into the head coaching world. Does he look at a school like this? And does Jacksonville look back at him? I think that, obviously, if you're looking at Chris Bates, he's obviously one of the best coaches in the country. Uh, simply made yep. a mistake at Princeton, no doubt. But at the same time, you know, does he make a comeback at a school like Jacksonville? I think he'll play his cards, obviously, for a little bit better of an opportunity. Uh, but you never know. Maybe he does. I, I, Chris, Chris, I mean, Chris Bates would be an, a home run Instant hire for Jacksonville if he expressed interest in that job. There's no question about it. I think, though, for anybody that has children, you have to look at the quality of the schools in the geographic area that you are going to move sure. to. And, you know, are the schools in Jacksonville a place where Chris Bates is willing to send his son, or is it an environment where he feels that in order to sustain a certain level of quality of the education – you know, is this a place where he would have to pay for a private school if he took that job right. to send his son there? And does Jacksonville pay enough for him to, you know, incur that expense along with that move? I don't know. I, I don't. I, I personally don't see Chris Bates expressing interest in Jacksonville. I think there's going to be a lot of movement, and I think Chris Bates 
is going to get hired and be in Division One lacrosse again very soon. My hope is it's as soon as he wants that to yep. be. It also wouldn't shock me if he decided to take a year on <laughs> and not coach. Um, but again, I just I just hope he's happy wherever he is. And I reiterate that Princeton made a mistake there, and you know we'll see how things turn out for all parties. You know, what, some of the questions that people always ask: What does a program need to be successful? Uh, and I think. A couple things, in my opinion, ATA, and you can jump in here, but a program in order to be successful is, one, you need a big recruiting budget. Certainly like a school like Jacksonville, that head coach, those assistant coaches got to get on the road. Uh, one of the more, like, you know, just being from at Dartmouth and being at Michigan, one of the nicest or best things that Dartmouth and Michigan did was they had more or less an open checkbook. You got to get your True. butt on the road and recruit, and that's what we did. And, you know, I logged hundreds of thousands of miles at, at both schools and it allowed us to see and evaluate prospects all over the country. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that you're going to have to, uh, you know, the hurdles is you need a, you need a good recruiting budget too. You need scholarships. I mean, certainly if you're in a league competing with, uh, you know, you look at the Mac or you're looking at the CA or, or whomever you're looking at, you, you, Depending on the quality of the education, you need scholarships. That's true. That's I, I true. Think there's, I think there's a – because, listen, this is what college coaches can leverage recruits with. They can leverage a recruit by saying, look, Ryan, I'm going to offer you support in the admissions office at our school, and given how stringent the admission standards are at our school, smart college, you're not going to get into this school without our support. And seeing that you aren't going to – play pro lacrosse and sign a seven-figure deal when you get out, if you come to Smart College, you're going to have a leg up to get that premier internship after your junior year, and ultimately that could lead to a first-choice job opportunity in whatever field you want to get into, which, as we know, is the sports finish line, yep. right? Until these guys are signing huge contracts to play in the MLL, it will always remain the sports finish line. The other side of that leverage that a college coach has is if they say to you, Ryan, we love you as a player. We know you're being offered support in the admissions at smart college, but college is very expensive and smart college costs $240,000 for your family, for you to go there and graduate in four years. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer you a scholarship. So you don't incur that expense. If you decide to forego your option at smart college and come here to lacrosse tech, mm-hmm. right? And 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 those that's the only leverage the college coaches yep. have. Yep. Now, for the families that have resources, there's no leverage. And they there. can afford college. Yeah, certainly that makes a scholarship offer less appealing and more of a short-term convenience. Sure. But for the prospects and families that don't have those kind of resources, their opportunity to circumvent the great expense of college and have somebody else pay that for it's them huge. is, is huge. huge. So you can see, but, but those, those are the only two situations where college coaches have leverage. So I would chime in and say that you need scholarships if your school is closer to lacrosse tech than it is smart No college. doubt. I agree. And uh, certainly for the two schools that we're talking about, uh, you know, when you talk about the 70 school spectrum and Division One lacrosse, I would put them closer on the other half. 
Uh, so, you know, in terms of these schools, I feel like those are the things that you need to be successful. You need to be given all the resources. And certainly when these, you know, you got the Myers, the Fice, the Wellners, the Gillardies, if they're even interested, I'm just throwing these guys' names out because they've, sure. they've done a great job. But in order for them to take a job at Jacksonville, they've got to learn from these ADs that, yes, you are going to get all the resources and help that you need. You're going to be able to get on the road and recruit the same way that you would at UPenn, UNC, Navy, Towson. You're going to be able to you know, entice a great schedule. We're going to get you on the road. Uh, you're going to be able to compete. Here's the other part, too. You're going to be able to compete for a league championship every single year. And in a MAC school like Jacksonville uh, or in the league like UMBC, I mean, you're going to be able to compete for a league championship, which puts you in the national tournament, which gives you more profile as a school. I mean, that is uh, a big draw to certainly the two schools we're talking about. So, you know, I, I feel like despite what people might think as, you know, five scholarships or, you know, whatever it might be, look at what these coaches who have started with nothing and have built and look at what Taylor Ray and company at schools, even you could even go to, you know, a Lehigh that has been down on the dumps and look what Cassis has done and his time at Lehigh. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there is a lot of opportunity for a high profile assistant to take a job like J- uh, Jacksonville or a high profile assistant to take an even more high profile than Jacksonville job at UMBC. Cause that's, if I'm right. comparing UMBC and Jacksonville, I'm taking UMBC every single time. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity and certainly for those two schools uh, with all the young coaches and you've said it over and over AT uh, there are too many really good young college coaches out there to screw that up. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get some picks. There is a ton ton of games coming up on Thursday night. Uh, Maximize your comfort. Alright, AT. We got our picks. You have killed me last week. You killed me last week. I think you won by 10 points. So if we were... Made me feel so normal. It was bad. It was really, really bad. I think I overcompensated for my incredibly poor performance on Tuesday to combine it and went the opposite way. Plus I'm very sure that 90% of the picks that I wanted to go with, I changed just because you went with it too. And I couldn't get out of it. For instance, I have never not taken Ohio state at home and I didn't that game. And it was so dumb. It was so dumb. And I should have just taken it. That was the Uh, best. And I just went the other way and I knew I shouldn't have, Uh, but we've got eight conference first rounds, eight and we've got 16 total games. Las Vegas Lines published all lines for all the games uh, this coming Thursday, and I'm sure they will for the championships as well. So let's go down the line. Uh, there was no rhyme or reason to Las Vegas's. Uh, it looks like. I mean, they started with the MAC playoffs. So let's just go there, AT. We've got the number one seed. <laughs> They're not nationally ranked, but they got the number one seed, Quinnipiac, versus Canisius, the four seed. Quinnipiac is right now favored by three and a half goals. AT, what are you thinking in this? You know, I, Quinnipiac went six and zero in the MAC this year. They finished the season nine and three. Canisius was four and seven and three and three. I just, you know, I got to go with my boy Feck at home. I I think Quinnipiac covers three and a half. Um, you know, in terms of the over under at twenty and a half. You know, this is a team that, you know, has uh, – I I like the over. I think Quinnipiac's going to light it up. 
You know, they played head-to-head. Quinnipiac ended up won 17-9 during the regular season, playing at home against Canisius. They played home again. I like Quinnipiac to cover three and a half, and I like the over at 20.5. I like Quinnipiac here covering the three and a half. I do. Um, but I do think that, especially in the MAC versus all the other conferences in the country, and I know all the conferences, they care about their league tournament. I, I know that. But for the MAC teams... They only they, the only way they can compete nationally is within their own league and getting that AQ. And so this is do or die for this program uh, and for this league. And so I, I'm going to say it's a lot closer than the original score in the first you know the first go around. Um, so I've got the under here because I think it's going to be a little bit sloppy and I think it's going to be well coached between the two teams. I do have Quinnipiac covering uh, the three and a half, but I've got the under here. The next one, Marist, Poughkeepsie versus. Monmouth, the three seed, favored by two goals. Who do you have here, AT? I think Marist is a scary team. They've got, you know, good offense. My boy Frank Raiden, his nephew Joe Raiden, is playing for Marist. He's torn it up this year. 20, I'm sorry, 45 goals, which is a huge number. Uh, And I just see them being able to have too much offense for Monmouth in this situation, they did win the regular season game 9-8. So I'm going to take the under, but I'm going to take Marist to cover two. And I like the under at 21. I'm going to actually go with Monmouth here. Um, you've got Marist. I'm going to go with Monmouth. I've got Monmouth. I think it was a very close game. I think Brian Fisher has done an incredible job. Speaking of new programs and starting with nothing and really not having much at all, I think Fish has done a great job. Uh, and I think he's done a great job not only recruiting uh, specifically to what he wants and obviously coming from Notre Dame, he's got a lot of uh, you know experience in that. Certainly that's what Notre Dame does. But I think he's also done a great job of coaching him up on the field. Uh, so I've got Monmouth here. I've actually got Monmouth winning outright. I think Maris lost a lot in the last couple wow. of years uh, in terms of their talent. Fish has done a great job he, at Monmouth. He I does. Mean, he's, he's another one that doesn't get enough credit for the job that he's done. While they haven't had the pro, high-profile wins like Marquette and BU and Richmond, uh, he he also took over a brand-new program and has done quietly a great yep. job. Uh, next one, NEC playoffs, the semifinals. You've got the number one seed, St. Joe's, going up against Robert Morris. The last time they played, Robert Morris beat them. It was an ugly loss on St. Joe's resume. St. Joe's is favored by three goals in this one. What do you think here? You know, I think that this game that they played on April 23rd was a classic letdown game. St. Joe's had just come off a dramatic victory against Bryant at home, which is obviously their greatest rival. They go to Robert Morris one week later, Robert Morris not having a great year, and Robert Morris beat him. You know, thirteen to eight, and sort of a, a a blowout, which I think shocked. I think that was the the shock of the no weekend. Uh, at least it was for me. I would have thought no way that that was going to happen. So Taylor Ray gets his guys together. They go, you know, across town and they play Penn, a team that they I don't think have ever yep. beaten before this game, and they end up beating Penn nine eight in overtime. I watched part of that game, and that was just a huge win, statement comeback win for St. Joe's. Then they go and they beat Timmy Mack and meet down there at St. Mary's 10-12-5. I just I see this going St. Joe's way the second time, and I think it's going to be big. I, I got St. Joe's respecting their opponent better 
this time around, and I got St. Joe's to cover three points. But I do like uh, the under at 20 goals. So I like St. Joe's to cover three and the under. I have the over in this one. And I think my boy Restivo from St. Joe's is going to go off. I think he is awesome. Uh, I think he goes off for six plus in this game. I think it gets out of hand. And I think that the guys from St. Joe's as a program are going to put up 17, 18 goals. It's going to get, it's going to get ugly. I think Robert Morris has, you know, hopefully they hold RMU to one. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, But I've got the over, I've got St. Joe's as well. I think this is a throttle job. Number two seed in this, but also the number 20 team in the country, Bryant, uh, you know, playing against Hobart, favored by three and a half. What do you got here, AT? This game the first time around was 15 to two, Bryant beating Hobart. Uh, I, I just don't know after a 13 goal victory how these <laughs> clowns at Lax Vegas lines can think that three and a half points is a legitimate line unless they are just on the other side and we don't know about it. <laughs> How do you not load up on the right. Bryant Bulldogs in this situation? So um, I am going to load up on Bryant, and I am going to say Bryant's going to easily cover the 3.5. I would love to see Greg Raymond and these guys beat Bryant. I would love it, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think Bryant has too much to play for. Their body of work is too established. I just think that Bryant handles them, unfortunately, and I like the under here again, 21 and a half. I think that Bryant, uh, I don't think that it's that score, that high scoring. So I got Bryant laying three and a half, and I like the under 21 and a half. I like Bryant three and a half, and I like Bryant three and a half here because I don't think the face-off X situation is going to really pan out all that well for Hobart. I think that Bryant controls, uh, you know, 70-plus percent of the face-offs. I don't think Hobart sees the ball that much, and I think they get pounded on the offensive end. Uh, as you stated, I would love to see Hobart win, but I do, I do want to see a St. Joe's Bryant uh, NEC championship game. I think that that's going to be a great game. Yep, I agree. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. So I've got Bryant. I also have the under here as well. I think 21 and a half is a little too high, unless of course it's a blowout. Uh, America East playoffs, the number one seed, also the number four team nationally, Albany, uh, hosting Hartford. Favored by five goals. A.T., what do you think here? You know, right when I criticize the Lax Vegas Lions guys <laughs> for their Bryant line, they come back and they put what I think is just a perfect teaser middle-of-the-road line on this Albany-Hartford game. They played in the regular season. Albany played at Hartford and won the game 13-9. to And I want to take Albany, but their fourth-quarter collapse against UMBC last weekend, combined with Hartford's Dylan Protesto winning 70, almost X. 72% at the face-off X, makes this a, a nerve-wracking game. My, I'm torn between is Hartford, you know, looking at this game and thinking, you know, this is our shot and, and we're motivated to play, or are they thinking it's almost summertime and <laughs> there's no way we're going to beat Albany? I... I you know, it's at Albany this time, and the Albany faceoff guy, Ornstein, had a huge game against UMBC, even though UMBC was able to come back during that game. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to lay five goals, and I am going to stay with Scotty Marr and Albany to cover five, and I like the over at 23 and a half. 
I like Albany in this one. I don't think it's close. I think that the face-off unit for Albany is getting better. I do think that their biggest challenge, and this is actually a great challenge for Albany because they're going to face guys like uh, the kid at Hartford. I, Hartford I'm not even going to uh, try to pronounce his name. Um, but they're going to see guys like him all the way through the national tournament. Yep. Uh, and I think this is a great test for them. Um, I, I, there's no way Hartford wins this game, in my opinion. Uh, as far as them covering, I don't think so. I've got Albany as well. Uh, but I like the under in this. And I like the under in this only because I do feel like Hartford's going to win a significant amount of faceoffs, uh, more Less than he did certainly before, but certainly more than ha- uh, Albany, uh, which will certainly lower the score. So I've got the under of 23 and a half. Uh, next up, Stony Brook, the second seed, also number 15 in the country, uh, favored by four against the boys from Vermont, Burlington. What do you got here? This is an interesting game. They played April 3rd in Stony Brook, in Long Island, and they ended up beating Vermont 13 to 10. Vermont has, you know, doesn't have a long winning history. With that said, Brian Curtis has done a really good job recruiting good players to Vermont, particularly in the last few years. I think Vermont is playing their best at the end of the year. And even though Stony Brook has won three straight after dropping a surprise game to Marist, uh, you know, I think that Vermont is going to come to play. I would love to see Vermont beat them. And I know Curtis is going to have these guys whipped up into a frenzy. I think, hey, Mike Kruger, I think they do a really good job. I'm going to take Vermont in this game. I'm going to take Vermont to cover four goals. I really hope they win outright. Uh, I don't feel confidently they'll win outright, but I do think that they're going to cover, and I think it's going to be a, a one- or two-goal game, and I, and I hope that Vermont's able to win it. But I got Vermont getting four, and I like, again, the over at 23, even though it's a big number. I have Stony Brook. I think that going up to Burlington for Stony Brook in the first game, the first go-around, when you're driving through the mountains, up and down, and you've got the sandwich <laughs> sandwiches, the turkey sandwiches, just like scraping against the bottom of the bus, and you hear deep. the Gatorade bottles <laughs> rolling down, and every time up and down the mountain, uh, it's disgusting. So I think Stony Brook was a little turned off there. Uh, I've got Stony Brook in a pounding. Mm. Uh, I think Stony Brook's defense is a lot better than people. Again, a lot better than people think. I think their offense obviously speaks for itself. Um, But I've got the over as well, AT. uh, But I've got Stony Brook in a monster one goal. Plus, I don't want Vermont to win. I don't want Hartford to win because I want to see Albany go against Stony Brook again because I'm already going to pre-pick it. I've got Stony Brook. I've got Stony Brook. I don't (laughs) think think that they're going to let that happen again. But we'll see. Ivy playoffs. Your boys, Mm -hmm. the number one seed, also the number two team in the country. I won't even mention their name. I'm going to try not to mention their name for the rest of this entire podcast. (laughs) They are favored by four against the four seed Harvard. What do you got here? You know, Harvard played Brown during the regular season in the beginning of March. Brown jumped up to a 6-1 league. I think think it was 8-2 at one point. And Brown didn't play particularly inspired the third quarter. Ultimately pulled out what became a close game. I just think that Brown is hitting on all cylinders, and I think that this game left a bad taste in Brown's mouth. And so I can see Brown opening it up big 
in this game. I'm going to say Brown wins by eight goals. And I wouldn't even be surprised to see Brown win like 21 to 10, something like that. So I am going Brown on an easy four-goal cover. And I like the over at 22-5. Frankly, I think the over should be 26. I think Brown's a runaway freight train in this game. I, I agree. I think I don't know what the 22 and a half was because there's no way Harvard has an answer at the faceoff. Maybe backs. that was for Malloy's Sorry. overall point total this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think uh, I think the guys from Providence, uh, I think that they steamroll this one. I think that I have an answer at the faceoff backs. They didn't have one all year. I think they've got all the tools all over the place. I think they've got a couple guys coming back from injury, if I'm, if I'm right. Yep. Uh, Steve Helco should be back. Yeah, I just don't think – I think that that the – been the, hurt his whole career. You know, that's a kid really that if has. he was healthy the whole time, he is a first-team All-American. But it's just is too, too many injuries and too many inconsistencies. They're not close to getting an at-large berth. They pissed away a four-goal lead to Yale last weekend. You know, as, as soon as they have their first drop pass, their bags are going to be packed. <laughs> <laughs> well as soon as as soon as and i love Woj as... and ben and they do a great job but i just think that that they are they're looking for summer uh as, as soon as Woj and lars shake hands before the game and Woj gets back to the cone that pile on where the substitution oh, line, he's no. gonna look up at he's gonna look up at the scoreboard and he's gonna realize he's down four to one mm. oh, four to four to nothing real real early and that's, that's only, be, that's every only time. because the light bulbs on the one before the four have burned out <laughs> Uh, Yale, Yale, the number six team in the country, the number two seed in the Ivy playoffs, goes against Penn, favored by two. This one's a real interesting one. The over-under is 20 and a half. What do you got here, AT? This is an interesting game. You know, Penn on April 2nd was leading Yale 9-4 to in the middle of the third quarter. And I was watching the game with Boston Cannon hero Mike Regan. And uh, and Jamie Hanford, we were up at a youth tournament. And I was watching this game, and I go, you watch, Yale's going to find a way to come back and get this done. And sure enough, Yale ended up coming back, tying the game with about 10 or 15 seconds left and ended up winning in overtime on what was a controversial call. At that point, Penn had a lot to play for. You know, Penn was coming off a 20-10 to victory over Princeton, they were coming off a 9 to 6 win over Cornell. They lost, you know, a 5 goal game 13 to 8 to Maryland. And they had a lot to they had a lot to play for. Their Ivy Championship hopes were still very much alive, but they've stumbled a little bit in April. After they lost to Yale, they got their doors blown off by Brown. Right. They came right. back late and beat Harvard, which was a good win, but yep. then they held on with a lackluster performance at UMBC. They beat Dartmouth. What a surprise, but only 11-4. And then they lost at St. Joe's, and St. Joe's played harder than Penn did on that game. Uh, And so I just see Yale inspired to play for their captain, Michael Quinn, who unfortunately we lost to, you know, an ACL knee injury, one of the best players in, you know, ever in a Yale uniform, and they've got an at-large berth at the very worst and an AQ berth at the very best if they win this weekend. I just don't see Penn coming out with the same level of inspiration. They're a very young team. I just think it's a long season. 
So I'm going to go with Yale laying two. Um, and I like the the over at 20.5 here. I just think that both teams are going to have some offense. Penn won the faceoffs last time. Penn's going to score some goals, but I just don't see them playing a full 60 minutes and having it be enough for to beat Yale. So I got Yale laying two, and I like the over at 20.5. I, I have Penn winning outright. Ooh. I do. Uh, I think they, at minimum, I think it's a one-goal game regardless. I think that Yale is just like, it's just, I, I, and I had Yale as a Final Four team uh, earlier this year. And I still, you know, I think if Michael Quinn stays healthy, I think if they've solved some of the issues that the faceoff affects, certainly solve some of the issues, uh, you know, they have in the goal. They, they're just solid all the way around. I think they could have made it to the Final Four, but I just think that some of the things that have happened down the stretch haven't gone Yale's way. I think that, if we're looking at this, we're picking all the favorites, of course. It's the first round of the tournament. But I think if you want to mix it up and you want the parity that Division One has been this year, I think you look to this game as one of the shockers. And so I'm going to pick Penn uh, as, you know, made madness ensues in Division One lacrosse. I've got Penn, and I also like the over on this one as well. Let's move to the CAA. Uh, number one seed, Towson, also number 11 team in the country. Uh, favored by two and a half against the Philly Dragons of Drexel. What do you got here? I've been a big fan of Towson all year long. Uh, however, I I think that over the course of the season, they've slowed down a little bit. You know, while they did have a great win over Hofstra last game of the year to secure the number one seed in the CAA conference playoffs. I just think that Brian Volker has his team playing well these last few weeks. They narrowly beat Delaware 6-5 two weeks ago, but they came back and they spanked UMass 10-5. While they are playing at Towson, I just think that uh, I think that Drexel's going to give them a fit, and I think Drexel's going to come to play. I think Towson probably wins the game, but I think it's a one-goal game. I think it's 9-8, 8-7, something like that. So I see two and a half being too many. I got Drexel getting two and a half, and I like the under at 18 and a half. Uh, I like Towson here, and I like the over. I have the score at 11-8, Towson over Drexel. I think it's about 19-20 goal game. Um, and I just think that Towson is just too strong. I, I do agree with that. They have you know stalled a little bit. I think they've, they haven't played incredibly well. Uh, but I think that they're just too good of a team uh, to go into their playoffs with anything less than their best effort. I've got an 11-8 victory, Towson over Drexel. Uh, the next one, Hofstra, favored by one on Fairfield. The three seed favored over the two seed here. What do you got? Fairfield's played well. You know, the beginning of the year, I was saying, look, we're looking at, after they started the season with three straight losses to Richmond, Bucknell, and Rutgers, I was looking at their remaining, you know, their next four games in UMass Lowell, Stony Brook, Georgetown, Yale, Colgate. And I was saying, we're going to look up and we're going to see Fairfield at one and seven, and it's not going to be pretty. You know, to Andy Copeland's credit, they've really done well since since March 19th, beating Colgate, beating Quinnipiac, beating Hofstra by one, Drexel by one, UMass by two, and Delaware by five, only dropping games to Villanova and Towson. When they played Hofstra, they played them at Hofstra. And that was the first game that, 
you know, started sort of a run of winning four to five games. So now that they're playing at home, I'm going to take Fairfield again in this game, even though they're the underdog. So I like Fairfield getting one, but I like the under at 21 and a half. I'm going to take Fairfield as well. Um, and I do will I will also take the under. I think that this is awkwardly going to be a low scoring game. I think that Fairfield is on a nice little run, uh, as you just mentioned. Um, and weirdly, I feel like they're you know they had a lot of issues with an off field you know incident. Uh, but it seems like Copeland. I mean, what a job we talk about coaches. You know, Copeland has been. Uh, a guy that has been considered for almost every opening out there, and True. deservedly so. Um, and he gets his guys to play. I got Fairfield as well, and I do have the under. Moving on to the SoCon, this should be an absolute bear fight. Uh, Air Force, the number one seed, also the number 12 team in the country, favored by two and a half against Bellarmine, number four seed. 19 and a half is the over-under. What do you got here, A.T.? You know, it, it's tough to not pick Air Force after them winning the last 13 games in a row. Now, however, you look at their game against Bellarmine, where they played at Bellarmine. They only won 8-7, but they have found a way to win close games throughout the year. You know, the question is, is I think I think Air Force is going to win the game. Yeah. You know, they're going to Air Force, which is really hard. It's a really hard trip and a hard place to play. I just, I just think that in the end, I think Bellarmine's going to keep it close at half, but I think Air Force is eventually going to pull away, and I can see Air Force being up 10-8 you know, in the fourth quarter, and then Bellarmine overextending since it's the end of their season if they don't win. And a backdoor cover? Yeah, a backdoor cover for Air Force. So I'm going to take Air Force laying two and a half, and I like the under at 19 and a half. I'm going to go the exact same way. I actually have uh, a very similar scenario. I think it's going to be a two, three goal win with a potential backdoor cover at the end. I think it's going to be a low scoring game. I could see it being an eight or a nine, seven or a 10, seven game uh, catching the under 19 and a half. I have the same thing. The next game, Richmond favored by two against high point. Your boy, John Torpy 20 is the over under. Yeah. What do you got here? You know, Richmond's had a great year. They had a great win over Duke. They have, you know, Dan Shimani cemented himself as one of the best coaches in the country, but so is John Torpy and his staff. I think it sets up well for High Point. They lost 7-3 to three in the regular season, which was at the end of March, and that was when Richmond had Mitch Goldberg in uniform. Mitch Goldberg, you know, clearly their best offensive player, yep. unfortunately hurt himself in the UVA game the game after. And I think that that changes their team significantly. He's a guy yep. that wins matchups, no matter who was covering him. And while they were able to win a four goal, low scoring game, you know, in the middle of the season, I just see that loss being something that high point is going to be able to take advantage of. And I got high point winning this game outright. So clearly I have them winning plus two here. Um, and I'm going to take the under at 20 goals. I think it's going to be a very low-scoring game, but I like High Point to win the game outright. High Point and the under. I got the under here as well. Um, I, I'm, you know what? I'm going to go with Torp as well. I think Torp has got them dialed in. I think this has obviously become the biggest rivalry in the SoCon, uh, in my opinion, is High Point Richmond. 
uh, and I think that this is their Super Bowl. Uh, I think that they would argue that they wish they could play each other in the championship again, uh, but clearly you got to beat Air Force to do that. Uh, so I've got High Point as well to cover two. If anything, I think it's a one-goal game, uh, and I also have the under. I think it's a low-scoring event. Big East. Here we got the two big dogs at the end here. Big East playoffs. Uh, number one team in the country, Denver, uh, favored by six against Providence, the four seed. What do you got here? Uh, these teams just played two weeks ago, and it was a pretty close game in the second quarter. And Denver ended up ultimately winning the game 17-7, to which is sort of Denver's <laughs> typical deal. They just uh, they found a way to break Tate Boyce, who I think is one of the best, if not the best, freshman goalkeepers in the country. I think he was named first team all Big East, I believe, um, yep. which is it doesn't surprise me. Right, right along with Alex Reddy. Yeah, exactly right. So it, it doesn't surprise me. I think that Providence played them as well as they can. But Providence is now headed out to Colorado where Denver played them in Providence. I just see this being a game that gets away from Providence early. And then with the depth of Denver combined with the elevation uh, I see Denver covering six goals fairly easily in this contest. So I've got Denver laying six, and I like the over at 22. I have the exact same. I wouldn't be shocked if it was a very similar score, 17-7. I think that's probably fairly accurate, what it's going to look like in Colorado. Uh, the next game, Marquette, the two seed, also number 19 in the country, in a pick em. Against the three seed, also the number 16 team in the country, Villanova. Great one here. I think this is going to be a great game. What do you got here? I think this is going to be a great game, too. And the, but the pick em line is a little shocking considering that Marquette beat them 11 to 3, eight goal victory you know, back in the beginning of April. I just have too much respect for Mike Carrado and his staff. And while I know Joe Amplo and those guys have done a tremendous job, I mean, ar arguably the best job of any of the new coaches out there, I just think that Villanova finds a way to change the result of this game. I'm going to take Villanova outright to come back from an eight-goal loss a month ago to beat what I would consider an upset in this game, even though Villanova is ranked higher at 16 where Marquette is ranked 19. Just the fact that Marquette beat him so badly in the regular season, I think that Villanova ends up finding a way to get this win. But I do think it's a low-scoring game. Um, so as much as I... As much as I want to take the over, I am going to take the under at 20.5. I see it being a 10-9 game Villanova or 10-8 game Villanova. So I got Villanova and the under. I've got uh, Marquette here, uh, and I think that Marquette's defense is just going to put a lid on Jacob Vaccaro. And when you, when you stop Vaccaro, you stop the entire team uh, at Villanova. And I also think that the transfer from the New Jersey Institute of Technology has been crushing it at the face-off X, which will certainly uh, diffuse Paul Modesto at the face-off X. I just have Marquette all over the field here. Um, so I'm going to pick Marquette straight up. I do like the line of pick them, even though it was 11-3, because I think that the perception is still it's an even game, despite what the paper might say that Marquette should go out there and beat them by two, three goals. Uh, so I like the line. Uh, I'm going with the over. I think it's going to be like a 12-10 uh, kind of game. Uh, so last but not least, the Big Ten playoffs. The number three team in the country, the number one overall seed in the Big Ten, Maryland, 
Uh, favored by two against Penn State, number 18 team in the country. This was a great game uh, a few weeks back, the first Sunday night game of the Big Ten uh, League games. Uh, what do you got here, AT? This was this is one of the best games of the year and certainly fueled your argument for more 7 p.m. Sunday night games. Uh, I, I loved watching this game. I thought that Penn State, though, at that point had a lot more to play for. They, I, I just don't see them being able to handle this Maryland team. Room, rumor on the street is that Austin Henningsen is going to be back for Maryland. Let's not forget, before he got injured, he was one of, in my opinion, the top three, four face-off guys in the whole country facing off at close to 70%. I believe he's going to be back, um, but even if he's not back, I just see Maryland after winning 11 straight, a lot of two-goal games. You know, they, as you said, they seem to win every game eleven to eight. Right. And you pegged the Johns Hopkins result, yes. which was awesome. Uh, I I think that I think Maryland covers two goals in this game. Maryland is hitting on all cylinders, and I think that I'm going to take the over at eighteen and a half here. I think Maryland brings a little more offensively. Penn State can score. I just, I just think that Maryland's going to get it done. I can see about a you know fourteen to eight game, something like that. I think Maryland's going to cover. So I got Maryland laying two, and I like the over at eighteen and a half. I think Penn State's going to junk up their defense. They started playing zone in that that third quarter of that game, slowed up the pace a little bit. I remember the comment you made, which was, "No, I'm going to play slower." No, I'm the slowest. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a relatively low-scoring game. I could see like a, you know, a ten-eight game. I could see a nine-seven game. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to have nearly as drastic runs like it did the first time around. Uh, but I think it's just going to be a slow-paced uh, Maryland victory by two. But I've got the under here. Johns Hopkins, the number two seed, ranked ninth in the country, favored by a goal and a half against the number seventeen team. In the country, Rutgers, the three seed. This is awfully interesting considering Hopkins, or excuse me, Rutgers beat them the last time. What do you got here, AT? You know, I love the season that Rutgers has had. I think Brian Brecht has cemented himself as a front runner. Well, probably the second runner behind LT for National Coach of the Year. However, with that said, they're facing a Hopkins team that they beat with no gray area in the beginning of April, just a month ago, they beat them, as you said, you know, 16 to nine. There's no way that Dave Petromala, Billy Dwan, Bobby Benson, Larry Quinn are going to allow Rutgers to put 16 goals on them again. I think they're going to force this team to beat them in a way that they aren't comfortable doing. I think they're going to force Rutgers midfielders to become goal scorers, and I just don't see that allowing Rutgers to put up that many goals, and I think what you're going to see is a very, very inspired Johns Hopkins team dying to get another shot at Maryland, but not looking past Rutgers, and I think the fact that they lost to Rutgers during the regular season is going to get and hold the attention of the Hopkins players, which is what the Hopkins staff needs. So I've got Johns Hopkins covering one and a half 
and I like the under at 22 and a half in this game. This is awfully interesting. Uh, I, I agree with you. I have Hopkins. In fact, I have Hopkins potentially winning by more than three, maybe even four. They could. Um, I, I, uh, the over-under is what's getting me. Um, I'm just not sure. Is this a 10-12, 13-game, 13-10, 14-10? I could also see it being 11-8. Uh, my favorite score out there. Uh, I'm going to go with the under as well. I think it might be a little too high. Uh, but I do have Hopkins beating the spread. When we come back, uh, we have hashtag Ask Towers, favorite part of the show. Maximize your comfort. Hashtag Ask Towers. Uh, we've cut three questions out of the podcast because they can't be, for podcast protection, as you like to say, AT, we cannot uh, put them on. Um, we're down to the last one and hopefully you can answer it. Ask AT. This is from Joe Saletto. He's back again. Uh, the Needham Needler, as you like to say. The Needham Needler. Ask AT about Mike Murphy running the gold defense in college. <laughs> so this is going to be a shot at Penn's Mike Murphy. So Murph and, uh, and Joe and Kevin Erickson and I all played high school lacrosse together. And Murph and Joe and Kevin all went down to Duke. And apparently during the Duke preseason, <laughs> apparently during the Duke preseason, they had worked on a zone that Tony Cullen, who was the Duke coach at the time, had put in for these guys, and they called it the gold defense. <laughs> and they, they, they worked on it for one day and then never talked about it ever again, never used it. Clearly it sucked so that they erased it, and that was it. <laughs> well... Their junior year, actually their senior year, my junior year, because I did so well in school that I qualified for a postgraduate year at Lawrenceville to verify that I was indeed the student <laughs> that, they, that I led them to believe during my first four years of high school. Uh, <laughs> they're playing. We, I remember this weekend, too, perfectly, because uh, Duke was playing Carolina, and, and we were playing Princeton. And Carolina was ranked number one in the country, and – we were ranked number two in the country. So we had played Princeton, and we beat them 7-5. to five. And we were, you know, whatever, 11-0, and we were anxiously watching the result of the, of the Duke-Carolina game. And I believe that Duke was, you know, down 9-8, something like that, late in the game, and, and we were thinking that that was going to be our opportunity. So we were following the results. And... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody from the sidelines, and it wasn't the Duke sidelines, it was a fan or whoever it was, yelled gold. And (laughs) (laughs) and Saletto, I believe, was covered Dennis Goldstein, who ultimately would go on to become National Player of the Year. And somebody had yelled gold, and instead of Murphy sliding to help Joe... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Murphy just went right back into that zone defense that they practiced three and a half months before. <laughs> didn't slide. Dennis Goldstein ran around the goal and scored. <laughs> Carolina won 10-8, and that was the game. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. So Joe and I talk about when I'm coaching this year with the GFA team with Hanford, and I talk about our team is struggling so much. He said, you got to stop running that goal defense. It's very successful for you guys to have to do. The worst. 
Oh, that is it for the show. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, it's free. Uh, I keep getting I keep getting questions. What does it cost? No, it's just you click the button so that the little badge comes up and tells you when there's a new podcast. podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also Periscope? check us. Periscope? Periscope. Oh, no. Sorry, dude. That's no, it's a different one. Uh, as You can also check us out on Twitter at InYourFaceLax. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy. The weekend of lacrosse, certainly there's a lot of tournament games. We're also down to one podcast per week now uh, with as little games as they are coming up. Uh, We're going to cover them all, and we're also going to preview all in one podcast. Probably won't be nearly as long as this one today, uh, but we're down to one. So maximize your comfort, enjoy the week, and we'll be back next week. Let's go.